Well, I, I was talking to Gil several months ago about what possibly to do. And, and I said, well, you know, it is Lent. And one of the great texts in Christian thinking and in all, frankly, all of Western society is Dante's uh, Divine Comedy, which was not his name, by the way. That was given to a couple of centuries later. Uh, and it's divided into three parts, the Inferno, the Purgato, and the Paradiso. That is, you go down in order to go up. And so I thought this would be an appropriate Linton study. And it is. It's an incredible book. I mean, people read it, write about it, research it, teach it, talk about it. The details are just amazing. In fact, I brought a commentary, and this is considered one of the authoritative commentaries, on the Inferno, and this is just the Inferno, one-third of the book, and it? it's 600 and some odd pages long, commentary. I don't know how many references Dante has in it. It's, uh, it's, it's like an encyclopedia of uh, 14th century Florence and uh, previous history and all kinds of names and references that uh, you really have to have a help with a commentary like this to, find, you know, to get all the subtle detail about what's found in, in, in the Divine Comedy. But, I, but it is a great Christian study, I think, um, human understanding. And uh, that's why I thought I would do this here during the six weeks of Lenten. All right, I'm going to open up with uh, a Lenten prayer. This is on Ash Wednesday. Uh, this is from the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, which in my home opinion is the best. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm going to read this as the prayer to open up. Almighty and everlasting God, who hatest nothing that thou hast made, and dost forgive the sins of all them that are penitent, create and make in us new and contrite hearts, that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may obtain of thee, the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, and that's, that's my goal, is that through the learning from the insights of Dante here, that we might come to a better recognition of our own sinfulness and our need for God's mercy to do so. Right. Here's a little bit about him. He's a 13th, 14th century Italian of the Guloff family, which was called the White Party. It got embroiled into an intense political debate, uh, in fact, war, and he was exiled eventually from uh, Florence and never to return. And it was in his exile that he wrote the Divine Comedy. Now, Dante was a, a, a first-rate intellect and a great writer, not only of, of poetry, which is what the Divine Comedy is, but in prose as well. He wrote other books about science and philosophy, and he showed his thorough knowledge of classical learning, that is, uh, Greek and Roman learning. And uh, in some ways, it's, he is known as the great poet, but he's also known as a great philosopher as well. Yet this book, The Divine Comedy, whenever he talks about science and about uh, philosophy, it's always a little tendentious. That is, he uses people and ideas for his own purposes. And so if you want to find out anything about, you know, both Ethos, whom he knew a lot about, don't go to the Divine Comedy. Go to, go to his other works. Uh, but uh, the great themes that especially pertain to us uh, in the Divine Comedy, especially in the Inferno, is that punishments are equal to the kinds of the sins. And that's, I think, one of the great insights that's found in the Divine Comedy. Uh, you, you may be familiar with, in fact, a number of years ago, I did a series of the seven deadly sins here. 
the seven deadly sins had been around for a good number of years. In fact, its, or, its roots go back to probably the 4th century. But it was Thomas Aquinas of the 13th century, about 100 years, or less than 100 years before Dante, who really sort of codified the seven deadly sins. They're, they're really, and we'll see some of those in just a minute, tremendous insight into human nature. In fact, you know, if, if you could just think of sort of the basic psychological understandings of modernity, let's say if you're Freudian or um, any other of the, the major sort of psychological understandings, that's what the seven deadly sins were for the medieval period. That is, who are we? Well, we are people who are caught up in the seven deadly sins. He inherits that and uses it to explain the issues that people have to deal with. And one of those is, uh, number one, that is, our, uh, we create consequences that are a result of our actions, that what we suffer for are directly related to what we cause in our life. Okay, and the second great theme is that sin results from disordered loves, and that's the key point here, that they're not necessarily irrational. That is, the, 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 the quagmires that we create in our lives are born sometimes out of our, our very deliberate uh, uh clear-headed choices, but those choices are perverse because they are based upon the wrong order of loves. Uh, the, the proper order of love is, first of all, God. That's, that's the highest order of love. The second order of love is the respect for humans bearing the image of God. The third order of love is the love for God's creation. In some ways, if you can rightly order what you are committed to, your desires, your aims in life, according to the love of God, the love of people, and the love of creation, then you will find fulfillment. That is, you are doing what you're designed to do. But if those things get skewed or backwards or corrupted in any way, it, it, it corrupts our own nature. We were designed to love. We are desirous people. We aim for fulfillment. As, as Aristotle starts his great book on ethics, all aims have aims. All people aim. And we are, we do, we're, we're, we're made to love things, to be in communion. And so we have to very much be committed to the right ordering of those laws because that within will determine our human nature. And then the third one, and he is as good as anyone at seeing this. St. Augustine was great about this back in the 5th century, but uh, to see the pervasiveness of corruption. Uh, if you're familiar with this, uh, some of those powerful, both secular and ecclesiastical figures of his day, he puts way down into the bottom of the hills. He knew that power corrupts. No doubt about it. And it does. And he knew that piety can corrupt as well. Some of his most telltale insights, I think, into uh, to what people do is some of these... Uh, I mean, he'll put some very pious people into a level of hell. They thought what they were doing was right, and they sort of sanctioned it by their own kind of religious activity. But in fact, it wasn't right. That corruption can be not only overt, but it can also be implicit and tacit in our lives as well. That's kind of a... That's a scary thing. Scary for us. Um... Oh, one other thing I, I probably should have started. This is a very unmodern book. This is not Fifty Shades of Grey kind of stuff. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I've not seen the movie, I guess, before I sort of comment on it, I guess I'll see it. But be that as it may. You didn't say you hadn't read the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, uh, but, but what he will advocate in thing, what he will advocate most of our sort of what one calls post-Christian society is totally oblivious to and, and one of them is, are these points or these themes. Uh, pervasiveness of corruption. Most, a lot of our society is based on this idea that one, corruption is sort of an antiquated idea. But if there is corruption, it's in those people. 
that political party, that group, this region, those people, not in me and mine. That we're immune above corruption. Well, one, I think that's naive. And two, I think it's probably a dangerous idea because you're never aware of your own tendency to harm and, and victimize other people. You'll justify it, sanction it because of your own sense of being pure. But what Dante will show in the end, nobody's pure. Everybody is utterly dependent upon the mercies of God. Now, uh, Dante's Inferno has inspired a lot of art, and this is one of the most famous paintings. Maybe you've run across it. It's a little bizarre looking, uh, but this is from the great uh, Florentine painter uh, about a generation or so after Dante, uh, Botticelli. And that's the map of hell. There are nine circles of hell in Dante's Inferno. And uh, this is... Um, I ran across this painting. Uh, that prior painting... Uh, small little figures, if you magnify them, you'd see certain representations of people that he referred to in that circle of hell. It's brilliant. It really is. I hope one of these days I'll get to see it. Now, I, I couldn't find a better painting of that one. That's Michelangelo. Uh, I guess in some ways it's kind of fitting that it's blurry because it, we're down in hell and people are losing their identity, their form, their their, distinct, their, their distinctiveness. But this, has, that is, this concept of hell, descending down into levels of punishment, has inspired a lot of artists. Um, now, I want to comment about this one. When I saw this one, it was an eye-opening experience for me. This is Rodin's Gates of Hell. Rodin is most famous for what? The thinker. Well, he's up on the top there. Not, not the very top of that gate, but just below it. You can kind of see him there bent over like this. I had always seen that statue and oftentimes it is isolated as just kind of a philosopher pondering the meaning of life. If any of you know anything about the famous French philosopher named René Descartes, his most famous line, of course it's, it's horribly misunderstood by people, is, I think, therefore I am, or the Latin that he used, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And I always sort of pondered, you know, that's exactly what the thinker was doing. You know, I think. Therefore, I am lost in great sort of philosophical musings. That's not what Rodin meant for it to be. This is a depiction of Dante's Inferno. This is at the Cantor Art Center on the Stanford University campus. Uh, any of you been there? Any been on that campus? It's huge, for one thing. It's almost the size of downtown Birmingham. Well, they have this world-class art museum. The Stanford family endowed it for, I can't remember their son's name, he died of pneumonia early in age. But anyway, and my son is there, and we were out there one time, and we went to this museum, and I mean, it's really well done. I mean, it, it probably rivals ours here. Uh, and we walked outside, and Stephen said, you need to take a look at this. And I didn't know what I was looking for, and there it was. I was standing right there in front of it. And so the thinker here is not thinking these wonderful philosophical musings. The thinker is thinking about the plight of humanity. Where's the thinker again? I don't see it. Whoa! <laughs> right there. And these are the levels of hell he's looking down. And each of them depict the kind of misery of that circle that people are in. And that's what he's thinking about. He's not thinking about sort of metaphysical speculations of you know, the rhyme and reason of things. He's thinking about the corruption of humanity. That's what he's thinking about. And that's causing this kind of 
Well, it's ponderous, but it's also remorseful. Uh, I, I looked at his face more, and I hadn't paid enough attention to this. I've used this in class before. That, in, in a sense, uh, an abstract thinker will think about those things that provide the rhyme and reason of our lives. Okay, nothing wrong with that. But in a way, though, a Christian thinker, which is exactly what what Dante was, he was thoroughly thinking as a Christian about all this, is is remorseful, is grieving, is is despondent about the corruption of humanity, the level of it. We're not, and, and he's not so moralistic that just because you had some lust because you saw Fifty Shades of Grey or something like that, that, that to him is trivial. That, that, that's not even worth talking about. What he's talking about are more serious kinds of corruptions that come from part of us that we are unaware of, that we will do things that we thought we would never do. Uh, and by the way, that's, that's the day we all grow up, isn't it? When it dawns on us that I will do something I thought I would never do. Well, that's what this book is about. Every one of these people that he mentions in this book never thought they would be killers or, 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 or adulterers or, or liars. They never thought they would do it. They all started off with the best of intentions. And that's what the thinker is pondering here. Okay, here are the nine circles of hell. Uh, we start off in what's called the vestibule. It's a pretty interesting place. We'll say more about it. And we'll get into the, the first two circles today. The book is divided up into 34 what's called cantos or chapters. Interesting that they use the word canto, which comes from cantor or cantor, which means chant. A cantor is a chanter. This might have been uh, chanted at one time or another, uh, as a lot of sort of medieval texts were. But anyway, there are 34 of them. We're going to look at the first five today. All right, first of all, Canto 1. Uh, what I'm going to do is to give what I would consider, what I do consider to be kind of the main verses in, in each of these chapters here. Not a thorough analysis of each one of them. The first chapter here is about, about the dark wood of error. There are a number of lines in the Inferno that have made their way, I think, into our sort of common uh, list of quotations uh, that we share in our society. One of them we'll see in just a minute. Uh, but this one is one of those. Midway in our life journey, I went astray. Midway in our life journey, I went astray. People estimate he was 35 years of age at this time. You know, seven score, three score and ten years, 70 years, he's midway. And he is in a crisis. Uh, don't know really what and what brought it on, but he is in the throes of anxiety about who he is and what has happened to him. And he starts this kind of reflection. In some ways, the divine comedy is his own effort to articulate this crisis that he's in. And a way in which he describes the crisis um, is that as he is looking about his life, trying to make sense out of what's happened to him, uh, he, and this is the great allegorical aspects of the poem, it's, it's narrative, it's history, it's, it's theology, and it's allegory. All those are mixed up, and this is part of the genius of Dante. He's very good at using allegorical figures. Here in this first chapter, in this midway in my life journey, I went astray, he realizes that he has been hounded by three main kinds of problems that he cannot get around. These are obstacles that are insurmountable to him. And he allegorizes them as three animals. 
The first one is a leper, and the second one is a lion, and the third one is a she-wolf. The leper is malice and fraud. Some way or another, he couldn't get around it. Malice, that was an obstacle in his life. Whenever he thought he had a plan, it would always creep back up into his life. The line of violence, remember I told you he got caught up into the Civil War. He was exiled. It, uh, I'm trying to remember. I, 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 well, I'm not going to say, but it seemed like there were family members that were either imprisoned or, or killed in this. Anyway, he knew violence was encircling him. He couldn't get around it. And then uh, incontinence is the sea wolf, and that means sort of basically either sensuality or sexual temptation. He was really, really struggling with that, his own sensuality. And, and as he tried to move himself forward to get a better sense of who he was and what he ought to be doing, he couldn't get around these three obstacles. All right, and so he fell into a ruin. This line here is, I fell into my soul's ruin. A presence gathered before me on the discolored air, the figure of one who seemed hoarse from long silence. Any of you remember when you read this who this was? Well, his name's there on that next line. Virgil. Virgil is a Roman poet who wrote the Aeneid. The Aeneid is considered one of the great poetics work, poetic works in, in Western civilization, definitely of the Roman Empire. The Aeneid is fascinating. It, too, is sort of a descent. Uh, Virgil writes about Aeneas descending down into afterlife, finding the origins of Rome with Romulus and so on, as descendants of those who, um, who fled the, uh, the Battle of Troy. Uh, it, it in itself is a, is a masterful work. Uh, but uh, interestingly, though, just as an aside, if, you, if you've read much about the Aeneid, it's really a political tract. Uh, it's really about how Rome was sent by the gods, in fact, descendants of the gods. So here we are, you know, Greece has the Iliad and the Odyssey. Why are we better? Why are we so important? Well, we have the Aeneid. We are actually the descendants of the gods. It's a political tract. It's a propaganda piece. I know that's a harsh judgment for it, but that's what its primary purpose was. It was kind of like a national epic. Well, uh, Dante had memorized it, and it, that was no small feat to memorize the whole poem. And Virgil here is not his savior. That's a mistake to think of Virgil this way. Virgil is his guide. Virgil is his guide. Virgil is sent by Beatrice, who was sent by Mary. Mary, the mother of God, mother of Jesus, sends Beatrice. And I'll talk a little bit about Beatrice in just a second. She doesn't play much of her own inferno. She was really important in the Presidio and in, in access to, to blessedness. And Beatrice sends Virgil to help Dante to get through this crisis that is in, hounded by these three animals. Uh, first of all, uh, a little bit about Beatrice. Uh, uh, you know, this is one of those kind of idiosyncrasies that I guess every great artist is entitled to. You want to think that maybe Beatrice was some sort of Greek, you know, god or something. She's not. She was a local beauty there that he'd probably met only twice in his life. She was, she was the daughter of a banker, <laughs> a son of a bank, I mean, a, a wife of a banker, and was very prominent in society, known for her great piety. Uh, and Dante saw her a couple of times and was, what's the right word? Enthralled, smitten, captivated by her beauty. She becomes the sort of the quintessence of femininity and piety, all wrapped up into one person. He uses her as this sort of um, uh, symbol of divine love. 
that is sent by Mary, the mother of God, to come and rescue this poor soul. Interesting that Beatrice is that person. Maybe, you know, all of us here probably have a face or two in our memory that will always be there. Maybe that's what she was for Dante. Uh, but Virgil, though, is the more interesting one. As I mentioned, uh, Dante was a great, great student of classical uh, culture. and uh, He knew Aristotle well. He knew some other great Christian philosophers, Bothethus being one of them. Back in the 5th century, Bothethus was a magnificent philosopher, shaped by both Aristotle and Plato. And he also knew Thomas Aquinas, who died in the year 1274. I mean, Thomas Aquinas is the one of which there is no exceeding. Uh, he wrote 10 million words, a great philosopher, a great theologian, a great pious man, a Dominican priest. Um, but interesting, though, that he doesn't use Thomas Aquinas. And he was very, very well known of, of St. Francis of Assisi. In fact, he, 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 in, in Presidio, he has great praise for both Francis and Thomas. Why doesn't he use Thomas? Why doesn't he use Bothethus? Why not Aristotle? A lot of medieval philosophers were very taken by Aristotle. In fact, Thomas Aquinas was very shaped by the philosophy of Aristotle. Why does he use Virgil? A, an explanation, I don't know if it's completely satisfactory, is that this is a poem and Virgil was a poet. This is using language in a very metered, dense way to say things that cannot be said otherwise. Poetry has a capacity to express some feelings and convictions and insights that's relative just to that way of communication. That is, if you translate a poem into prose narrative, you've interpreted it. You have not presented it. The poem itself has its own meaning wrapped up to it. And I think what, 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 what Dante is trying to do is to say something that it takes a poem to say it in. I don't know if I'm making myself clear in that. Just like great songs, great hymns, great, great symphonies, great orchestras, great canvas art, great architecture, they convey a meaning relative to their own method and style and portraits the same way. So my hunch is this. He needs a poet to get out of his crisis. Not just a great philosopher like Aristotle or maybe even a great theologian like Thomas Aquinas. He needs someone who has that sublime gift of using words in a way to reveal meanings. They're always hidden to us pedestrians who can't do that. That's my hunch about Virgil. All right, so Virgil shows up and uh, he, he uh, teaches him, he's, he's instructing him on this, this journey that they're going to go through and at the end of this, if he will just follow him alone and then Virgil at the end will pass it on to, to Beatrice, uh, he will find his soul's salvation. So Virgil is asking Dante here is trust what God has ordered for you. Because remember, uh, look at this. Uh, you can see it this way. God, through Mary, sends Beatrice, who sends Virgil to rescue Dante. And uh, Virgil, a pagan ver uh, uh, poet, uh, unaware of Christianity, and frankly, I, there's, there's no indication that he was aware of Judaism or the Hebrew Scriptures at all. Uh, but here, God sends even this pagan poet and what the pagan poet is able to say to him to lead him to salvation. All of this, though, is directed by God. I, I should should probably start it off by this. Um, uh, a lot of people don't like this. They don't like this idea that a pagan poet can teach us anything. They don't like the idea that a pagan philosopher like Aristotle can say anything instructive to us. 
that we have revelation and that's enough. We can just sort of pick and choose out of the scripture and come up with a clear understanding of things. Now, I, I need to be careful and I'll try to choose my word as a poet, words as a poet in this. Uh, all insights about God have to come through the scriptures. No doubt about that. That's why they're called scriptures, holy writings. However, though, learning from what has worked effectively and what has not worked effectively, not just in your life as a Christian, but in non-Christians, well, can become instructive for us. Uh, you know, you, you, you're aware of this. A lot, a lot of people will say, you, you know, we don't need any reason. We can just rely on faith and revelation. We don't need any philosophy. We can just, you know, have Bible studies and that's enough. Well, Dante's opinion was this, that... Uh, that that God has created the world in a way in which uh, there is, as, as we're going to see in a little bit, God's glorious handprint left in creation. Even though it has been marred and harmed by sin and rebellion and hatred and all that, and human ignorance and so, but God's imprint of glory is still within creation. Every now and then, some really insightful non-believers can elucidate that inherent glory in creation. And help us better understand how to rightly order our lives towards God. Now, Virgil, interesting enough, he just helps Dante get into Inferno. But when they finally get down to where Lucifer is in the ninth gate of ninth circle of hell, Virgil has to pass him on. He, Virgil doesn't save. Philosophy doesn't save us. Learning from non-Christian sources won't save us. But they give us illumination. They give us insight into the human nature and the human dilemma and problem. And that's what he's learning here from Virgil. And so it's not reason versus faith or, or philosophy versus theology or scripture versus, you know, secular learning. For, for, for Dante, and I, I agree with him on this, and I admit, I, and I will, I will say a lot of people don't agree with him on this, but what we have here is an ordering of the two, not a contrast of the two. It's not faith versus reason or theology versus philosophy. What we have here is the proper ordering of them. That philosophy, that human insight, a good critical analysis of who we are, what we deal with, what people have learned for these, whatever, 3,000 years of Western civilization, or 2,500 years of Western civilization, can help us better understand the effectiveness and, and the significance of our Christian faith. They can help us understand it better. An old phrase that started long ago with a guy named Justin Martyr, said that philosophy is the handmaiden to theology. And this is exactly what Dante is using for. It's a handmaiden. It's, it's not the maid. We don't marry philosophy to find God. But philosophy is a handmaiden. Philosophy can help us better understand and prepare for a greater understanding of what faith has to offer. Okay, this, is, this is Virgil's role. All right. And you then, that Virgil and that fountain of pure speech, my voice grew Tremulous, as he says. Here he loved Virgil, like I told you, he had memorized the Aeneid, and now Virgil is speaking to him in this allegory, and he is just breathless that this great, great, great poet here is going to lead him on. Okay, then we go into the second canto. Uh, this is the beginning of the descent. Through all the cantos, all the levels that he deals with those three allegorical animals, or just in the first one? Oh, well, good question. Uh, just in the first one. Okay. Virgil is going to show him a way around those. Okay. Those are obstacles that he by himself could not overcome. 
now, of course, we can psychologize this and say, I have obstacles that maybe I've created of my own or I've been, you know, remember he's in the Civil War and he can't get around violence. Where he went, there was violence circling him. That we have these sort of obstacles that we've created that we can't get around. Someone needs to help guide us through this. I cannot be my own guide, in other words. I have to be guided. Virgil shows up and says, all right, here's the way you do this. Now, this is where it becomes kind of like a horror movie. All right, how do you get around the obstacles in your life? You've got to go down. You've got to step into the inferno. You've got to admit the effect of sins in your life. Uh, 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 you know, one of the first, uh, uh, one of the first rules in, in counseling, um, when you when you counsel with somebody who's dealing with long-term problems, is you have to you you have to accept the proposition that before it gets better, it's got to get worse, <laughs> and that is you have to admit just how stuck you are in your obstacles, how deep the dilemmas are in your life. And what, what Dante is telling us, it's got to get worse before it can get better. This is Lent, isn't it? I mean, we got to get worse with this. We've got no more you know, shenanigans, no more rationalizations, no more excuses. I have created problems that I have to deal with. And I can't just rationalize them away. I can't gloss them over. I, I, am, I am my own problem. I, it's, not, it's not that I have a problem. I am my own problem. And so it's got to get worse before it gets better. And so the first thing that Virgil does is say, okay, we've got to step down. And he is stepping down now into the descent. Sure. Is, 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 this, um, is this from the point of view of a, of a, let's say, a baptized Christian who's sort of gone off the mark? Or is it, or would this be a sort of a pre-salvation sort of, I am wholly apart from God uh, sort of perspective? Uh, it's more the former than the latter. That is, this is from a Christian perspective, a baptized believer who has gone astray. He doesn't. He cannot make sense out of his life, even though he knows the truth. And one of the sort of presumptive, I mean, uh, presuppositions of, of of the whole book is that there is a set of beliefs out there that are true, and they're not up for grabs. Uh, however, though, that contrast is something he couldn't quite see. It's not that you you are outside of this truth or in this truth. The truth envelops over everybody. And so even if you're a non-believer, there's still this truth represented by the teachings of the church. And so he would, he would, I think, also think a pagan could do this as well. That what he's going to appeal to often has very sort of explicit scripture and ecclesiastical references. But first and foremost, it's about human nature. That anyone who has experienced life of any kind of level of commitment and intensity will understand you know, and we're, we'll get to this. I'll, I'll pick up the pace here to to the issues of lust. It's not just a Christian problem. Okay. Just a few things here about uh, Canto Two. Uh, to free you of the dread, I will tell you all of why I came to you and what I heard when I first pitied you. It is I, Beatrice, this mysterious woman in his life, who send you to him. I come from the blessed height for which I yearn. Love called me here. God's love comes and gets us and teaches us on how to live the life of blessedness. This is not just randomness. The path to God is not just sort of um, chance. 
It is all guided by the love of God. So this ordeal that he has to go through, and it is, there, there are times in which, uh, we'll see this in just a minute, the uh, 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 Virg- I mean, uh, Dante's viewing on the plight of humanity is so overwhelming to him that he faints. He passes out. He can't take it. Uh, but is that because of, you know, there, there's nihilism or no meaning in life? For us to come to recognition that there are such horrible atrocities that are committed in the world, it, should that convince us that there is no hope? Well, see, as, as Dante starts us off, now all this instruction, all this horrible taxing endeavor that we have to go through to realize the profound corruption of human nature is guided by love. Is guided by love. Just as a, as a little aside here, uh, uh, I've talked about this issue with several of you on other occasions. Uh, this morning, as I was reading a few headlines, uh, I found one on the history section of, uh, about the Battle of Verdun in World War I. Any of you have ever read much about the Battle of Verdun? It is a nightmare. Close to a million casualties on the French and the German side in World War I. You know, this past August was the 100th anniversary of World War I. Most of us have forgotten about it. It, in some ways, was worse than World War II uh, as far as the level of death and suffering. And um, I'm going back to London. I, some, I've told you this before. I've spent several semesters in London. Sanford has a study center there. I'm going back to London. And a couple of times, my wife and I have gone and looked at some of the battlefields. I've been to Normandy. You ever gone to the beaches of Normandy? Yes, sir. It's overwhelming, isn't it? Yes. I, I wept. I couldn't control it. As we were walking the beaches of Omaha, I just, I just could, couldn't control it. But see, in, in a sense, this is what he's... He's going to be looking at Omaha and Verdun and the, the corruption of the human soul. And it is so much it can make us faint. And it is to see that level of just malice that has gone on. All in the name of good things, by the way. That's, that's one of the worst things about World War I to realize. There was no real Nazis or Imperial Japan in World War I. They basically were all good guys. And they were all Christians killing one another. Now, that ought to make us faint. See, and here's the lesson. As, 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 as Virgil is saying, I have been sent by Beatrice. And Beatrice has sent me to teach you what love is all about. Love has called me here. And to teach the divine love, I have to, first of all, expose you to human corruption. Another aside, you may think I'm nuts on this one, but uh, I think one way to understand the sovereignty of God, that unique capacity that God has to be omnipotent. Not, not in the way that I could possibly be omnipotent in small ways, but the sovereignty of God is that it takes a sovereign God to know the extent of human cruelty, malice, death, violence that has happened. I faint from it, just like he does. I would grow into despair if, if it were shown to me in all in one fell swoop the misery from Cain slaying Abel up to whomever is being unjustly killed at this moment. If I saw that in one instant, what would that do to me? It would shatter my soul. It takes a sovereign God to be able to know the extent of human misery in the world and still, as it says, work love through that misery. Could I do it? No. Could you? No. Could our country? No. It takes a sovereign God to guide us 
by love through such such despair. And so here here is Dante. So in a sense, when you read this book, you've got to buckle up. It's a rough ride. Is Who said that? May West? Here I am quoting May West. I've got to be careful. Uh, but buckle up is a rough ride to come to such realization of the extent of human, human malady and misery. Okay. He turned when I spoke, and I'm going to pick this up, and at his back I entered on that hard and perilous track, just like I said. It is a hard and perilous track to be, to be in Lent. I'm sounding like a preacher now, but to be in Lent means we have to go with Dante down this hard and perilous track. That is, each day we should confess who we are and... Really, if we take that great parable, I mean that great beatitude to heart, blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. That's not just natural mourning. I think that's bearing the mourning of the world. To be able to hear the sigh of the oppressed, as Marx called them. The brokenhearted of your friends. The anxiety of, of whomever. To be able to bear that in our own heart. You know, Lent. Lent has this interesting capacity. It narrows us into ourselves. I confess who I am, a sinner. But in doing that, it expands us to include the confession of all sinners at the same time. Blessed are those who mourn. Well, that means we have to be willing to walk down this this hard and perilous track to do so. All right, here's Canto 3, the vestibule, interestingly enough. Of hell. That's the most quoted line out of the Inferno. Isn't that right? You ever heard? You ever read? Abandon the uh, hope, ye who enter here. It's on the gate as he starts down. What a horrifying thing to realize that these people here are without hope. Now you think? Now couldn't God get them out of this? Um, this is the insight I think of not only Dante but. But Christian theology as a whole is that God has ordered uh, God's relationships to us in a way. And this is God's free decision to do so. Not mine, but God's free decision based upon who God is. Is uh, to, to relate to us as free beings. God has chosen to relate to us as people who should relate back to God. And... There are ways that we can so misuse that relationship that, that, it, that it permanently assaults and affects us. What we find here is not limitations to God's sovereignty. I don't think that's what the Inferno is teaching us. But what we find here is that each of us can come to realization that I have created an Inferno for me and I cannot get out of it. I cannot, I cannot rationalize it, make excuses for it. I am without hope. And it's only by God's rescuing that I can get out of it. So this is not saying that our sins limit God. It, what it says, and this is one of the paradoxes in our faith, I think. What it says is that my sins limit me. It doesn't limit God. It limits me. And so it's better to come to this point that I have created a situation in my life that I should abandon hope. Because at least that's an honest recognition of how profound the corruption is in my own life and in the life of all of us. What souls are these who run through this black haze? And so he moves into the, the, the right outside the first gate and it's like fog. Like I drove off a 
uh, I live up in Bluff Park. I mean, it was 100 feet at best, I could see. Finally, when I got down to Shades Mountain, I could start to see. Well, this is 100 feet at best. He can't quite see what's happening here. And, and, and then Virgil says to him, These are the nearly soulless whose lives concluded neither blame nor praise. And their plight is they have no hope of death. Interesting. What does that mean? To have no hope of death. Uh, these are people who didn't commit anything, either good or bad. They weren't participatory or invested in any kind of great cause. They were so cowardly or weak or indecisive, they were just always kind of in the middle of things. That's, that's where they're called the neutrals. They were not willing to be committed to anything. Referees? Yeah, they're the, you're, that's a good analogy. That is, the game is not important enough for them to play. Right. Yeah, that, that's that's their problem. But one of the nearly soulless. I mean, <clears throat> it takes commitment to fortify yourself, to deepen yourself. It, it's like unless you're willing to pay the cost of love, you'll never have a soul built by love. And these people weren't willing to pay the cost on anything. Well, I, I, I've got about six or seven minutes here and I need to stop right before 11. Um, but here's, here's their plight. That is being non-committal, being just sort of dispassioned referees who are not interested in getting in the game. Their plight is they have no hope of death. They can't get out of this. They're just, uh, they, they've, um, they've lost their way to see through any of this. Um, well, Dante says, okay, we'll move through this. And they come up to the river of Asheron, which separates the vestibule here from the circles of hell. And it is a horrible thing. And this kind of reaper, grim reaper, who, who runs the ferry between earth and the gates of hell, shows up. His name is Sharon. And he is this ghostly, horrible looking figure. And uh, you have to be... Uh, you have to be going to hell to get on the boat to go down into hell. And Sharon protests this. And Virgil persuades him that we're on a mission from God on this one. And so you got to let Virgil, I mean, you got to let Dante on this. And so they start across the river Ashram. And uh, this is the first time he faints. He faints a couple more times. That is uh, uh, Dante. The, the, the horror that he is now witnessing is so great he cannot take it. And so he passes out. He wakes up as they're about to board into the next. Okay, Canto, the circle one, is called Limbo. These people are sinless. This is an interesting group. A lot of people have criticized him for this. These are the great virtuous pagans. And he mentions a lot of great philosophers, Aristotle being one of them. But he also mentions unbaptized children here in this first circle of hell. You know, a lot of people would criticize him. Why would you put unbaptized Christ, I mean, babies here in the circle of hell? Well, that's part of the medieval concept. Uh, I guess the truth to realize about that is that one only is redeemed by God's acts of grace. Uh, and baptism is a sign of God's grace. And so you're not, since if you're an infant, it's not that you're a little angel. You still need grace as an infant. I still need God, whether I'm an innocent baby or not. To be redeemed, and so these people here are in this state of limbo. Uh, I really want to. I'm going to pass over this a little bit. Um, 
I wanted to mention that last line, in glory, I mean, I glory in the glory I have seen. This is what Virgil tells Dante. He is able to see God's glory through these great pagan philosophers like Plato and Socrates. Uh, and throughout other great representatives, he mentions some Muslims here, have way of teaching. He mentions several great Muslim philosophers like Averroes and Avicenna, teaching the glory of God in their own sort of way, that God's glory is is not necessarily clouded out or completely eliminated by the arrogance and the sin of people. But I want to talk about this one first before we leave. This is uh, the first really serious one, and that's lust. Now, we need to get this right. It, he's not talking about temptations. He's not talking about that which we naturally feel and we struggle with. That's not it. That, that's just that's trivial for him. What he's really talking about is how people rationalize using their lust to harm them, their lives and other people's lives. And this I listened with never-ending flight of those who sinned in the flesh, the carnal and lusty who betrayed reason to their appetite. And that's the point. They knew what was right, but they succumbed to their appetites. They rationalized their lust and did tremendous harm. Now, the most famous person in this, this circle of hell, and he mentions a whole bunch of them from Cleopatra to to um, um, a Lancelot, uh, but is a woman whom he knew from Florence named Francisca. Francisca had been married to a man uh, uh, named Clenothetius, and Clenothetius had a, had a brother named Paolo, P-A-O-L-O. She and Paolo fell in love and started an affair. When her husband found it out, he killed both of them. This was a, a very notorious story that happened there in Florence. All along, though, she wrote poems and flowery sort of romance letters about how great this affair was. He uses this as an illustration. Now, he's grieving over this. This breaks his heart. Once again, he's not condemning the natural attraction that goes on. What he's condemning is the rationalization of the harm done by lust. That's what he's condemning. Let me, I'll say this now. I'll go. Um, I think one of the insights about this is that all of us have sort of natural tendencies to addictions. Interestingly enough, all of us. I mean, you can start something right now and in six months you can be addicted to it. All of us have that capacity. And he's not limiting that. This is part of human weakness. But what he is criticizing is the tendency that we all have to rationalize it. To say this is really for our good. And that's the fault. Because see, as a simple illustration, if, if you're going to drive to Memphis, what's the first thing you need to know? Where Memphis is, right? If you just go up to Interstate 65 and turn left, you're not going to get there. You need to know where Memphis is. Even if you're just a poor driver, you can get there. Or if you're the best driver in the world and you go left, you're not going to get there. Well, these people who rationalize their lust have no hope. They just make it worse. It's better to know you're a sinner and continue in your sin than not to know you're a sinner and think you're not sinning. And that's what Francisca did. Love justifies everything. And he uses this phrase. We could go on and on about this. How many people's lives do you know, I know, who have done irrevocable harm to themselves, to the others, and their children, and their family, by saying, I couldn't help it. Hmm. I fell in love. That was Francisca's sin. She rationalized it and said, well, I couldn't help it. I fell in love. What's wrong with her is not her sexual attraction. What's wrong with her is her mind. That's what's wrong with her. 
her intellect became skewed, and she had this. She rationalized her appetite. I got two minutes here before eleven. Anyone going to the eleven o'clock service? All right. So if you need to, to leave, go ahead. Uh, when we come back next week, we'll go even deeper into hell. Um, I'm sending you to hell. Um, but anybody want to ask a question about anything that I've said? Make a comment about any of this? I have one insight. You know, you're talking about that. That it takes a sovereign God to see yeah. everything. Yeah. And look at like uh, in light of like our experience in Iraq and everything. Talking about we're done. People have this horrible life-altering post-traumatic stress disorder. They're just in one little tiny portion of the entire people. Yeah, think about it. We get post-traumatic stress disorders. What's to keep God from getting post-traumatic stress disorders? See, God knows all the anguishing people in hell. God knows them. God hears their cries. How does God respond to that? I would faint. Our hope is in some way or another the sovereignty of God can rectify all this. And this is what, this once again, I think this is one of the great lessons of what Dante is saying. Yes, or love, God's love can reorient us in a way to get out of the inferno. There, there's hope. But it comes from God's mercies, though, not from ours. And again, this is, this is not a modern book. Modernity says, you're your own God. We don't need a transcendent being. The insight that that Dante has here, and I, I, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here. I really am. I wish the the the, the, the non-choir was in here. Is that the insight here? Is that he is accurately depicting human nature? I mean, how many people have really ruined their lives by saying, "I couldn't help it. I fell in love." His argument is balderdash on that. You just wrongly oriented your intellect. That's your problem. You're not thinking correctly. Well, go in peace. Be warm and filled. And I'll see you next Sunday, hopefully. Thank you so much. All right. You bet. Good to see you again.